according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, once again, to Proverbs chapter 11. I promise we will finish this chapter this morning. I promise, I promise, I promise. We have to deal with reward and we have to deal with proportionality and uh, the issues that um, we, we got to point I at the end of last week, but didn't feel it was fair to just, you know, rush through it in two minutes. Um, we ought to spend uh, the bulk of today dealing with that and we can get a preview into chapter 12 if we have time. But um, as we look at the final portion here of this chapter, verses 16 through 31, we have this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, or the righteous and the kind, and the different uh, conflicts there. And uh, the people that try to imitate these things without Christ, without the Word of God, and try to create a, a, a reasonable facsimile of biblical Christianity, and all they are is whitewashed fences. You know, they're whitewashed tombs. They they have an appearance of some morality, but internally they are just as dark as, as you can imagine. And uh, so we understand the uselessness of that. Um, if the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? And so what's this about? How do we talk about the proportional reward to the wicked and the sinner? And why, what are we contrasting when we're contrasting righteous with the wicked? What are we contrasting when we're contrasting the earth and what follows? and uh, the uh, the things that uh, we're looking at here. So that's what we have set before us. Before we get started, let's open up with a word of prayer and ask the Father to bless our thinking, to bless our time this morning. Shall we pray? Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, thankful for this blessing and calling upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding Father, calling upon your faithfulness to overcome the uh, record-level pollen <laughs> that's uh, higher than it's been uh, in quite some time, and uh, scheduled, even if the forecasts are right, Saturday and Sunday are going to be worse than today. So uh, this is uh, all in your hands to deal with, Father, and uh, we call upon your faithfulness to allow uh, this class to go forth. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So in the outline, we're dealing with uh, main point 12. And which is kind of a, an umbrella point that covers everything that then follows in verses 16 through 31, the details that are then spelled out in subpoints A through I. That uh, these verses here are referring in some way to the rewards of righteous and kind living. And uh, understanding, of course, that it's more than just the practical rewards, it's more than the temporal rewards, it's more than the benefit we have on earth in time. All right. And, and that uh, ob that's obvious. That's a no brainer uh, that living an unhealthy lifestyle is going to have consequences. Living a biblical lifestyle is going to have other consequences and, and things you don't have to worry about when you're living the word of God and you're avoiding all that uh, stuff. All right. More than just in time, though. How about in eternity? What is the eternal recompense? What is the eternal reward? And what is the price that's being paid on on the on the wicked side as well? Beyond, of course, 
what they readily accept, and they, they seem to, to revel in it. They seem to boast in the diseases they accumulate or the other consequences, and they just count it as, you know, a cost of doing business. You know, it's, it's just the price you pay for having fun. And, uh, but it's far more than the physical damage that's being done and the temporal damage that's being done is the eternal soul damage that's being done. Soul damage that will not stop when their body goes in the grave. Soul damage that will continue with the damaged soul that will be in that, uh, dealing with that recompense for all eternity. And those are uh, some of the issues we want to deal with as we, as we look at it. So, you know, the, the, the crowd that thinks they can create a reasonable facsimile of biblical, biblical Christianity, they think they can create an alternative morality, uh, they've got another thing coming when it comes to uh, eternity and departing this, uh, this life here in time. And so, subpoint so I then, and the final point of study for this chapter, reward is proportional between the righteous and the wicked. We're going to stop there and, and explain that. Go through these verses and discuss it, and then we're going to go beyond this because we have a greater and eternal perspective we must also biblically account for uh, as we consider principles of undeserved suffering, as we consider the principles of the faithfulness of God, and why it is that the righteous suffers. So uh, I think the, the, the context on this becomes huge, and it allows us to answer our critics, and allows us to uh, even ourselves to endure the undeserved suffering that we go to. So we don't lose heart. So we don't uh, get short-sighted and start blaming God for certain things. So, uh, And then finally, before we wrap it up, we've got to deal with the issues of proportionality, the scale that it goes to. When we, we say, okay, we have this amount, how much more? Uh, to the point that the idiom tends to express things that cannot be counted. It tends to express a degree that is beyond capacity to to uh, put side by side. So we'll deal with that as well. In any event, um, the righteous and the wicked, there is a consequence. That is a general rule of thumb. That is the nature of volitional beings as God has created angelity and humanity to make choices uh, the moral realms of God's existence, uh, we make choices, we face consequences, right? This is the law of reaping and sowing. Uh, you make your bed, you lie in it, <laughs> okay? Uh, you make choices and you you deal with the consequences with, uh, with all these things and what we do. And so we've got principles. And I think uh, beyond what we have here, uh, yes, the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked and the sinner will be rewarded. There are consequences for what we do. Let's look at 2 Samuel 22. And let's look at Job, and we'll see some other passages where uh, uh, these principles are clear. Second Samuel 22, verses 21 and 25. And, uh, yeah, no issues on this, I don't think. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, in Second Samuel 22, David is issuing a lament here related to um, what... Uh, how faithful the Lord has been in all of his affliction. This is actually a chapter that almost word for word gets copied across in Psalm 18. Um, but as he reflects on these things, um, without reading the whole chapter here, but notice uh, there's everything that of what they're doing against him. So um, picking up on verse uh 17, he sent from on high, he drew me, he drew me, or took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. 
They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. All right. Now, so these these are true principles and these are legitimate applications. But we want to be careful with these things, though. We want to not carry them beyond the point that's being made or try to in uh, to read into these verses and, and develop a, a false theology. Right. Which which. Uh, creates what I think the prosperity people do and a lot of other folks do, that if we're good people, then not only will God do this, but God is obligated to do this, that God has to do this, that I earned this, that I deserved this, right? And so we want to be very careful there. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That is absolutely a true statement, but don't pervert it. Don't pervert it. Don't say that, well, if I'm just an extra good person, then God can't help himself but delight in me. <laughs> and then because God can't help himself but delight in me, then God is now obligated to rescue me, to bail me out of these other things. All right? We have a question? Did he rescue Jesus? Exactly. Yeah, he delighted in Jesus and then did not deliver him off the cross. And see, that's the flaw. That's the fatal flaw. And if you think that God is obligated, and that if God somehow doesn't take you off that cross, then that's what the temptation is. And the serpent said, come down off of there. If God loved you, he wouldn't leave you up there. He would bring you down. You know, call out to God. If he delights in you, he'll rescue you. And see, that's the very temptation that they were yelling at Jesus when they were trying to lure him to come down off that cross. So thank you for that. Um, so that's verse 20, verse 21. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. Now that is a true statement, but don't pervert it and don't take it beyond where it needs to be. And also don't divorce it from other passages we have in scripture, which are also true statements. See, and here, and that's, this is why we have to compare scripture to scripture, where we have to rightly divide the word of truth, while we handle these truths in their context at the same time that we handle other truths in their context and we reconcile them and we harmonize them and we put them all together in this way. And so the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. Now that could sound like works, could it not? Could that sound like, well, I deserved this and so God blessed me and my righteousness, woohoo, aren't I great? Well, stop and ask yourself, what is David's righteousness? <laughs> okay. If I, I invite God to reward me according to my righteousness, but I do so in full awareness that my righteousness is not my righteousness. My righteousness is Jesus Christ's righteousness imputed to my account. My righteousness is the grace of God that allows me to even be righteous or have righteousness or do anything in righteousness. As we see, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. Well, why do I have clean hands? Because I deserved it, I earned it, I deserved it, I cleaned my own hands, or am I washed in the blood of the Lamb? Am I, am I made righteous? Am I made clean because of God's grace? So, so you can't pervert these verses into some kind of a, a twisted, merit-based standard, whereby according to my righteousness, God is obligated now to reward me, to bless me, to give me the recompense that I'm entitled to, see? And so we want to be able to biblically teach recompense. Recompense is a biblical thing, both for the righteous and for the wicked. And, and, and we will be recompensed. 
but we will be recompensed according to the standard of grace and how we respond to grace and how we live out that grace. Then the recompense is a marvelous thing. It's still recompense, but it's recompense in the context of grace. On the wicked side, it's also recompense. And it's recompense in the context of rejected grace, in the context of, of willful rebellion, and the consequence of, of, uh, of, 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 uh, of complete and total satanic wickedness. And that's why we learn it. We learn in the book of Jude, and we learn in Second Timothy, or Second Thessalonians, and we learn about the recompense at the second advent. When Jesus Christ comes in, what does he do? And he recompenses the ungodly for the ungodly things they've done in an ungodly way. And you end up with a, a, a trinity there of, of ungodly people, ungodly things, and the ungodly way they did it. And that's recompense, and it's a proportional recompense. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're still in Psalm, 2 Samuel 22. So, um, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not acted wickedly against my God. For all of his ordinances were before me. As for his statutes, I did not depart from them. Um, I was also blameless towards him in verse 24. I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness before his eyes. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. With the perverted, you show yourself, and we can't say God's perverted, so we change the, the term there to astute, and we get more comfortable with that. All right, um, but that's the poetry of the Hebrew here. God is opposed to the proud. What does that mean? And he gives grace to the humble. And these are the principles that we have. So, uh, you save the afflicted people, but your eyes are on the haughty whom you abase. And that's the principle there. So, yes, it's true. Live the righteous life, God will bless that. That's the general rule of thumb. And that is absolutely applicable. However, there are other things that are also applicable. And we want to understand these as well. Let's go to Job. Job 4, verses 7 and 8. And um, really the entire book of Job, I think, is the illustration of this point. Job is the, the great hero, uh, the great Old Testament example of undeserved suffering. And uh, the prototype for Jesus Christ himself. Uh, I don't know that anyone suffered more than Job biblically until Jesus Christ suffered uh, in, in, in his earthly walk in Gethsemane and at Calvary. And uh, all undeserved, nothing that he did to, to merit it, nothing that uh, wasn't coming to him. It was not recompense uh, as God was not paying him back for his righteousness with, with suffering. All right. So there are other principles at work in addition to sowing and reaping and legitimate and uh, uh, righteous recompense. Okay. So um, after, of course, we're familiar with the outline. We've got two chapters of, of story, and then we have the, the lamentations that begin in chapter three. And then uh, we start to get the rebuttals. We start to get the critics here with Eliphaz in chapter four. And so... Um, we get to verses 7 and 8 here. I don't think... Uh, well, uh, Eliphaz the team and I had answered, If one ventures a word with you, we become impatient. But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many. You have strengthened weak hands. It kind of starts off with buttering them up with kind of a, a review of Job's past and uh, the reputation and, and, and 
it's accurate as far as we know. Your words have helped the tottering to stand. You have strengthened feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and, and the integrity of your ways your hope? And this, this introduces the assumption. It has come to you. The recompense has come to you. The standard of God's dealings has come to you. You are wicked and God is judging you. This is now your chance to confess your wickedness. This is, and, and, and we, you know, Eliphaz, big man that he is, and his buddies, they're willing now to, to serve Job the way that Job has served other sinners. And be able to come alongside and restore them and bless them and teach them and, and spark their repentance. So, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, where were the upright destroyed? How does that happen? See, whoever did that? Whoever perished being innocent, where were the upright destroyed? Okay, now this is a rhetorical question calling upon Job to answer based upon the past, based upon what they see in the present, based upon how things normally work. Um, I think also in the sheer aftermath of the early patriarchal generations after the flood. I mean, seriously, in these early patriarchal generations after the flood, uh, believe me, their humanity is in a mindset to understand the wrath of God, okay? To understand judgment and to understand this. According to what I have seen, and that's always good theology, right? <laughs> Based upon, you know, my vast experience. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it, okay? So reading from... Uh, Job 4, verses 7 and 8 here. We're still at the top of the slide. Um, this is how things normally work. You reap what you sow. And if you plow iniquity, you're going to harvest it. If you defy the Lord God, you will come under discipline. That's how things normally work. Live the righteous life, God blesses. Live the wicked life, God disciplines. And, and here we go. That's normal. That's, that is a principle. Um, and it goes on anyway. And of course the, uh, the, the flaw, there's nothing wrong with this premise, but there are other premises that must be considered. Um, as it comes down through here, you'll see verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily and my ear received a whisper of it. So not only is it what he, according to what he's seen, but it's also according to what he's heard. And what's he listening to? What kind of spirit is this that's whispering to Eliphaz in his night visions, in his dreams? Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. Uh, this this won't end well. Okay, this is not good. This is this is this is not the Holy Spirit that's doing this, right? Uh, then a spirit passed by my face, and the hair of my flesh bristled up. If you've ever been face to face with a demoniac, you know what I'm, you know what this is describing here. You know that 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 cold, that sense of of uh, demonic power. So the hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. 
And so Eliphaz is full of all kinds of self-pride anyway, and everything he's seen, his own experience, the basis of his own pride, and now he's listening to the demons. Can mankind be just before God? <laughs> well, you and I can answer this theologically. Yes, we can be just before God when he justifies us, when the just justifier justifies the ungodly. All right. Can man be pure before his maker? You know, how does a creature measure up to that unfair standard of the of the creator? See, there's some sour grapes in this whispering. He puts no trust even in his servants. Because ultimately, this father, this creator, this God, he's a tyrant. And he doesn't trust us. He doesn't even like us. Against his angels, even against his angels, he charges error. You know, that tyrant, he's not pleased with the angel realm. How much less you puny cockroaches. Okay? How much more? See, we're dealing with a how much more proportional statement. And so it's good that we're here because... This is what we're dealing with is the how much more proportional statement in Proverbs 11. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay. You know, at least us angels are light beings. <laughs> at least us angels dwell in the spirit realm. At least us angels are immortal and glorious. And, you know, we at least have a nature that, uh, that is comparable to his nature. But you dust creatures... You clay house um, mortal beings whose foundation is in the dust. Remember how Adam was created? Who uh, are crushed before the moth. I mean, how easy is it to swat a moth? How easy is it just to crush the dumb thing? Well, as far as the angels are concerned, that's us. We're these puny mortal dust things. Between morning and evening, they are broken in pieces. Unobserved, they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? They die yet without wisdom. All right, so um, it's an interesting chapter, and I think we get some glimpses into uh, some uh, demonic psychology uh, related to the attitude that these fallen uh, angels have, or demons, or whatever the spirit happened to be. Um, both fallen angels and demons are rightly called spirits, uh, and uh, and this. But these are the lies now that uh, that Satan promotes, that the, the fallen angels promote in the angelic conflict, is that humanity doesn't measure up, that uh, you reap what you sow, and and we just can't help it. God's unfair. Uh, we're we're weak beings. We're mortal, and uh, you know how can we help but sin anyway? Since we're so flawed and we're so human, and so who does God think He is? Why does He judge us? Why does He hold us accountable? That's not right. That's not fair. And uh, aspects there. Anyway, um, so we understand sowing and reaping. We understand those principles. Let's also understand additional principles. A greater and eternal perspective must account for undeserved suffering and the faithfulness of God when it appears the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering. And the best book for this is First Peter. I think you take Job and you take First Peter and you put these together and you get a great aspect of what is our attitude in suffering? How do we orient to God when we're suffering? 
do we blame him like Job did? Do we say, God, this is wrong, this is not right, this should never happen to me? Okay. Oh, I forgot. Back when I was in Job 4, I was going to go back to those rhetorical questions. Whoever perished being innocent is not only a rhetorical question looking at the past and looking at the present and looking at the normal human operations. It's also a prophecy of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Whoever perished being innocent. And how can a man be just in the eyes of his maker? Those questions are self-answering when you understand the, the work of Christ on the cross. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. All right, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, as if some strange thing were happening to you. Now, I skipped the middle part of that verse, but do not be surprised as if some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be shocked. Quit looking around like, you know, you're the... You're the first one ever in the history of mankind, right, to, to encounter such a thing. All testing is common to man. It's not weird. It's not, you know, it's not unusual. Um, it's normal. We live in a fallen world. We're fallen creatures in a fallen world. So do not be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, this fiery ordeal, it comes upon you for your testing, for your testing. And we see that there is a purpose clause with this, that whatever God permits or directs or whatever God allows, uh, God has a purpose for it. It doesn't matter what the world's purpose is or what Satan's purpose is or what your purpose is. Uh, you know, for, for when you decided to pursue some course of carnality, you had some purpose in mind. But God allowed it, and now God has a purpose for what he has assigned as the consequence. And so what the testing you're going through, the temptations you're facing, all of this, God uses it to documento us. And uh, so don't be surprised. But God's purpose is the one that's achieved. And remember, because it's God's purpose being achieved, what do we know? We know that we're going to learn from it, but we know that Jesus Christ is going to be glorified. Because God's purpose is all about not us being happy. God's purpose is all about Jesus being glorified. Okay? And I said it Sunday morning, and uh, well, there we go. We're not here. It's, it's not God's fundamental purpose to make us happy. To, to, you know, certainly not in time. There is happiness, but happiness comes by being oriented to the Word of God. And that's the Makarios happiness in the New Testament. All right, where am I? First Peter, uh, verse 13 now. To the degree, to the degree. So now what are we talking about? We're talking about a scale. We're talking about a sense of proportionality. We're talking about a measurement that we may not be equipped to measure, but God is on his eternal scales. And that as the rewards are handed down, we know that God is going to be absolutely fair. But there are scales. Justice is a thing of scales. And there's the righteous and there's the wicked and there's a degree. And we're going to have our recompense and they're going to have their recompense. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. And if you need more help on this, then stay tuned because we got Philippians coming up. <laughs> and Philippians is the book of rejoicing, rejoicing in suffering. And uh, so all of this is going to come up. So to the degree and uh, whatever scale that is, say, well, I don't like it. Again, God's not here to make you happy and God didn't ask if you liked it or not. Uh, it's, it's not about that. It's about picking up your cross and following. And to the degree. And what is that degree? 
Is, is that degree the degree that he assigns, or is that degree the degree that we tolerate? Is it the degree that we volitionally submit to? At what point do we draw the line in the sand and say, that's it, no more, we're done, quit it, God. Stop doing this. I disagree. I hate you. I don't want to go through this anymore. Right? But Scripture says be faithful until death. And so I don't want to draw a line in the sand. I don't want to say no more. To the degree, well, at least this day, I'm going to stay faithful. And whatever the Lord chooses to do tomorrow, I'm going to stay faithful. And to whatever that degree is, that's his business. You share in the sufferings of Christ. It's not about me, it's about Christ. Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Do you see that it's a proportional thing? Same as we're looking at in Proverbs 11, it's proportional. So if you cut the suffering short, what are you doing to the exaltation after the rapture? What are you doing in the eternal exaltation? What are you doing in that uh, at the revelation of his glory? It's, it's remarkable to me the diminished glory, the diminished joy, the diminished reward. You start to watch the wood hands double pile up that could have been gold, silver, and precious stones. But to the degree that you chop that off, you're diminishing the exaltation at the bema, at the judgment seat. Um, again, it's also the sufferings of Christ. It's not all about you anyway. It's uh, You say, well, these don't seem like Christ's sufferings. They seem like my sufferings. <laughs> well... Kind of subjective there, aren't you? Let's uh, let's back up a little bit. Okay, what are the works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them? It includes the suffering. Then, is it for your sake or is it for Christ's sake? All things are for Christ's sake. All things are created for Him and or through Him and for Him. And and what it is 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 if you submit to it, if you grow through it, if you benefit from it, if you allow God to do what the suffering is designed to do then you're going to be a stronger Christian for it. Christ is going to be more glorified for it. You become a tool in the Lord's hands to be able to encourage the next guy to come along and face this task. It's all for Christ's sake. These are the sufferings of Christ. And notice the sufferings of Christ. When we talk about the sufferings of Christ that were complete on the cross, as far as the, the, the redeeming us, we get that. It is finished, yes. But what are the ongoing sufferings of Christ that now are played out in the body of Christ that is the bride, that is you and I? All day, every day around this planet, the sufferings of Christ continue in his body on this earth. And we're to be partakers of those. We're to have fellowship in those. It's the fellowship of his sufferings that makes us conformable unto his death. Say, why am I so excited about Philippians coming up? <laughs> All right. Now, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And, and you get to become an imitator of Christ in that regard. And um, nothing better in my mind. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or troubles a meddler. In other words, make sure your suffering is undeserved suffering, not divine discipline. Okay. You know, um, if you're going to take those lumps, yeah, you're going to take those lumps too, but it's far better to endure the undeserved suffering. Uh, you want to you wanna apply. So when we're seeing, in other words, when we're seeing the, the, the law of sowing and reaping up here, that's one thing. When we're seeing the undeserved suffering down here, that's even better. Okay? And uh, if you are... Uh, 
suffering and the consequences of what you've done, then own up to it, accept it, live it out. And uh, don't you dare deny that, that you're getting what's coming to you, right? And, uh, and um, I've known folks that, that think they're the next generation of Job or whatever. They think, oh, and as if somehow it's this strange thing that, no, you're living out the consequences of your dumb choices and your willful carnality and your darkness. And, and, and what do you expect? Uh, kind of hang up the, the martyr complex there as far as that goes. All right. Verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And uh, and this is what it comes down to. All right. Uh, the rest of the chapter, taking us down to verse 19. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And so all of those all of those things from 12 through 16, then centering on time, centering on the temporal sufferings and consequences and all that, all of that then says, guess what? Today is judgment day. Did you know that? It is time. Today is judgment day. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Today is the day. And if we're wrong, then tomorrow we can say today is the day. And if we're wrong, then the day after that we can say today is the day. It is time. It is time for this judgment to begin. The trumpet can sound right here, right now, and all of us are going to stand before that bema. And we're going to give an account for everything. It is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now this too, read this and understand, this too is, is um, the parallel to our verse today in, in Proverbs 11. Because it starts with the household of God, but it doesn't end there. What's coming next? What is the recompense to this lost and dying world? What is the recompense to those that reject the gospel? It is the maximum wrath that's ever been poured out upon this earth in the coming tribulation. So uh, for those who do not obey the gospel of God, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Again, the term difficulty speaks of a measure, speaks of a scale, and there's a proportion. And if this is the case in us, what will be the case in them? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Uh, if you don't like that verse, come see me after class. We'll get a felt marker and we'll just cross it off. Um, there are too many Christians... <laughs> Tongue-in-cheek, right? You get that sarcasm? Okay, making sure. Anyone listening on MP3, understand what I'm saying here. There are too many Christians that want to just take verse 19 out of their Bibles because they have bought into a theology that says there's no such thing as suffering in the will of God. But there it is, black and white. Those who suffer according to the will of God. So when you encounter somebody that tells you that can't be true, point them to that verse and say, don't argue with me. We saw it also in 2 Corinthians with the man of incest and the sorrow that produces repentance. But there it is. Those who suffer according to the will of God. So don't dispute with me. Deal with it. Humble yourself under the authority of the word of God and adjust your thinking. They shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This destroys the whole false approach to Proverbs 11. 
you try to create a morality without some entrusting your souls to in doing what is right. You're not living according to the standard of the word of God. You're, uh, I think it's the same as holding to the form of godliness while denying its power. You're just creating a, a man-designed substitute for biblical Christianity. And there's no value in that. No value whatsoever. All right. So, um, consequences in time, consequences in eternity. Consequences in eternity for us, of course, is no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. The first things have passed away. We're, we're rejoicing with the Lord. We've got all the glories of light, the glories of heaven, the glories and joys that are inexpressible that are beyond the capacity for us to put into words here on this earth. Um, those who really did go to heaven and come back weren't allowed to talk about it, all right? <laughs> but what does the unbeliever have to look forward to? What is his recompense? What is his eternal suffering, the eternal destruction that he has to deal with? This too, the Bible makes clear, and the sensitivities of our generation uh, don't like it, and so we say it's not true. They, they'd rather accept annihil annihilationalism They'd rather just say, well, no, there's no such thing as eternal suffering. There's no such thing as the lake of fire. There's no such thing as the uh, as, as eternal judgment. And, and they can't make those claims based on Scripture. They make those claims based on their own preferences for what they think is, is right versus wrong. And here's the, here's the, the issue we've got to deal with. It is proportional. It is proportional. And if... So just ask yourself now, our eternal blessings are what they are. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. To me, that's infinite. But the wrath then that's applied and the proportional judgment that they have is beyond. Beyond. Okay? And that's hard to, hard to grasp. Well, the language, by the way, if you want to dispute it, um, I think it's difficult to dispute because of the other usages that we have in Proverbs and throughout Scripture. So let's go back to Proverbs. Look, let's look at Proverbs 15.11. we um, we got some more. We've got three more. Uh, how much more statements that are found in Proverbs. Proverbs 15, Proverbs 19, and Proverbs 21. And Proverbs 15 is verse 11. And you'll notice, um, again, it's the way of the wicked. It's kind of a longer discourse on the way of the wicked here. Um, so we have a number of verses that describe righteousness, and then we've got a number of verses here that describe wickedness, beginning in verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The sacrifice of the wicked. Okay, They're not just doing wicked stuff. The wicked stuff they're doing is tantamount to a, a, a sacrifice, tantamount to an offering that's going up before the Father's throne as a not a sweet-smelling savor. I'll tell you that. It's an abomination. Uh, verse 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Verse 10, grievous punishment is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just consequences in time. It's not just bad things and discipline and, and a rough life on this earth. What happens after he dies? Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. And so there is a proportionality there. And there is a consequence in the Sheol and Abaddon reference. 
And these, uh, the wicked that have the temporal life consequences, they're going to have eternal consequences in that eternal death of the lake of fire. Part of the how much more proportion that's described there. Uh, Proverbs 19 and verse 7. Proverbs 19, 7. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends abandon him? Okay, so there's proportion between brothers and friends. And, uh, you know, if, if your brothers hate you, are, are your friends going to stick with you? How much more do his friends abandon him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. And so the description of those things there. Again, it's that sense of proportionality. If, uh, you know, if, if family is turning their back, if family is sick of it up to here, if family is done with you, what do you think your associates are going to do? What do you think your friends are going to do? Okay, in normal terms, blood is thicker than water. Friends will, uh, family will stick with you even when friends abandon you, normally. And um, here we have, well, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's right. Um, anyway, there's the proportion there. Chapter 21 and verse 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? Well, now, why does that make matters worse? Okay, well, it does. And here's another proportional statement. So it's not just doing bad things, but it's the reasons why you're doing bad things. And if and you're compounding the issue, not just doing a bad thing, but for the wrong reasons and why you're doing the bad thing. Now you're judged for the motivation and the thing you're doing. You see how that compounds the issue? Some people think, well, I mean, humanity comes along and thinks, well, I had good intentions, right? Um, you know, uh, and so the, the 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 right thing done in the wrong way, or the wrong thing done in the right way, or 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 you know, humans like to mitigate what they do to say, well, you know, I was I was trying to do something good, and maybe there's a point to be made. If your intention was proper, then you won't be judged for the intention. You'll still be judged for the deed because <laughs> you did the wrong thing. And God expects us to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. And so uh, the proportion is there uh, for doing a wicked thing and for doing it in with evil intent. You're compounding the, uh, the judgment. And that's like I said earlier. When he comes, uh, in, it's mentioned in the book of Jude, how the Lord will come with many thousands, with myriads of his holy ones, rendering recompense to the ungodly, for the ungodly things they've done in an ungodly way. It compounds the judgment. All right, we also have how much worse. Same idea of proportionality, only it turns it to the negative. It turns it to the worse instead of the more or the better. And uh, in 17.7, we have this idiom. Proverbs 17.7. Um Excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less are lying lips to a prince. And so this is not much more, it's much less, but it still is, is putting two things in comparison and showing the proportional extent to which something goes beyond. 1910. 
Proverbs 19.10. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Again, two things are in comparison. They're placed on a proportional scale. Uh, they're put side by side, and one is so much different than the other, either more or less, that uh, sometimes you wonder, why are we comparing these? <laughs> okay, Why are we even talking about these in the same, in the same context or the same discussion? All right, so there's that. Um, let me just grab a couple of other things in our time remaining, and then we'll get a start on Chapter 12 next week. Uh, we'll learn how to love discipline and love knowledge. And um, we get to call people names. He who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> All right. So don't be stupid. Uh, we'll, we'll get into Chapter 12 next week. Um, I created a, uh, let me switch over now to Logos. I thought it would be useful for us. Close this out. Um, the whole concept, by the way, the whole concept of proportion, the concept of more or less, the concept of degree, right? A relative scale. It speaks to us. We, we can relate because we are relative beings, right? We are, we are finite beings. In some respect, God uses these, these expressions uh, in ways that don't technically relate to him because he's beyond all that. God is absolute. God is self-actualized. God is eternal. God is unchanging. The idea of before and after, they don't apply to God. Or more or less don't technically apply to God because God is infinite and, and eternal in, in all that he does. But he uses this language and it's all throughout the scripture. And I think it becomes essential to uh, so many doctrinal applications to understand much more, right? The doctrine in Romans, for example, on the much more love of God. The doctrine throughout the scripture on much more. God uses that, Old Testament, New Testament alike, to relate to us, to, that we can grab onto concepts. Because I think, I think um, as, as finite creatures, we, we get that. We get the fact that, that from the youngest of ages, we get the fact that some kids are bigger, some kids are smaller, some kids are older, some kids are younger, uh, you know, uh, parents are, are way old, right? And, and, you know, there's old and then there's extra old and there's extra, extra old. And when you're young, everybody's old. And, and so we have this scale of proportion and, and, and we can relate to that given the human experience as, as relative beings. So I, uh, I just did a little search and, and threw out some of the extra verses that, that didn't really fit well with the point. Um, and uh, so let me open this up. I made a, a document here. Uh, called it the Much More Applications. And so, you know, 37 of them that, that really, kind of, I think, speak to these much more principles that God uses over and over again throughout the Bible. You're probably familiar with almost all of them, or many, especially the New Testament ones. But in Exodus 36... The fact that the very first one that shows up here with the much more principle, uh, they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. And this is a beautiful, to start the whole much more series with this, I think is extraordinary because it's showing not the have to of tithing, but the want to of grace giving. And it's showing the proportionality that we have. That when they were gaining voluntary contributions for the building of the tabernacle, uh, the people were giving much more than what was needed. 
And, and it's this beautiful principle that under tithing and under the law and under the have-tos and under legalism, under legalism, when people give what they have to give, you've got one realm of operation. But then under grace, when people can't, are free to give what they want to give, notice which one has the much more principle connected with it. <laughs> it's this one. It's the much more. And as God has been so faithful with us as a grace ministry, it's been the much more grace of God that's provided every time, every time from paying for this building to buying the new computer to, to everything. The much more grace of God has always been there to support this ministry because this ministry has been a grace ministry, not a legalism ministry. All right, Deuteronomy 31, 27. I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, I am still alive with you today and you have been rebellious against the Lord, how much more than after my death? <laughs> Moses on his deathbed says, you bunch of rebels. It's not going to get easier under Joshua. And how much more? And, uh, and he's right. 1 Samuel 14, 30. How much more? Oh, this is a beautiful one. This is when Jonathan actually has the temerity to rebuke Saul, his own father. His own father, Saul, had this foolish vow going, saying, nobody eat. Nobody eats today. And um, and they were getting tired. They weren't allowed to eat. And there was all this plunder. There was all this booty. There was honey. There was, I mean, there was a great blessing. And Jonathan was saying, hey, you know, how much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Saul's foolish order diminished the victory. So there's a how much more statement there in 1 Samuel 14.30. 1 Samuel 21.5. <laughs> um, women have been kept from us. How much more? Um, talking about eating the consecrated bread. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out. And uh, the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? David says, I can't think of a time that these soldiers would be more holy than, than today. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? You know, in other words, we were in such a hurry to get out of town, we didn't even have time to say goodbye to our wives. <laughs> so, we're about as ceremonially clean as soldiers get, right? Soldiers are rarely ceremonially clean because they're constantly killing people and touching dead bodies and, and, um, and that. Uh, 23.3, David's men said, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? You know, we're, we're fugitives hiding in these caves, and that's scary enough for us. You want us to go attack the Philistines at Keilah? How much more? Uh, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his own bed, shall I not now require this blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? I mean, there's murders and then there's murders. Come on. How much more? And look what you've done. All right. Abner was a great hero, and the report of his death was not happy news to, uh, to David. David said to Abishai, to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. You know, I'm fleeing from my own kingdom because my own son is stealing my throne. You think that's bad enough? How much more now this Benjamite? <laughs> Shimei, let him alone, let him curse. You know, maybe the Lord gave him this message. 
sense of proportion there that David addressed. Um, here's the, the Syrian who's all offended because he was told to go wash in the Jordan River. And uh, his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? <laughs> you know? I mean, there's a scale of proportion here. And if the prophet had told you to go climb Mount Everest or something, you know, you'd have done it. But instead he gives you something easy to do. And you're all offended. Right? And isn't that the case? We give the gospel to people and they get offended because it's so easy. And well, anyone can, you know, and, and they don't like the fact that the, 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 what gets them saved can get anybody saved. And, and they want, they want to claim credit for something. Make it difficult. Make it something I can earn and deserve. How tragic is that? We already saw, um, Job 419, how much more you dust creatures, uh, you know, God's, doesn't like uh, us angels. We looked at the Proverbs ones already. There's those. Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem? And that deals with the remnant there. All right, New Testament now. Get through some of these. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Okay, and what's the point that he's making here? How much more are you not worth much more than they? Okay? And that's the proportion. The birds aren't going hungry. Are you going to go hungry? Is God going to take care of you? Verse 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? You know, what is the proportion? What is your value in God's sight? And so that sense of proportion, Jesus used that to teach. And I think that's, uh, that's clear. How about if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children? Right? Using language of extreme. Maybe you're not evil, but boy, compared to God, you're evil, right? Because God's infinitely good. So if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more? It's infinitely more. The idea on these how much more principles is that we're comparing apples to oranges, really. We're comparing things that can't be compared. So the how much more, the answer is infinitely more. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they, so that's the proportion is an equivalency is like I'm going to become Christ like. But if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? You realize that the affliction we get in the church age is greater than the affliction that Christ got. Why is that? How much more? Why is that? Say, well, how much more is Satan's wrath when he knows he's defeated? How much more is Satan's wrath when he knows his time is short? How much more is Satan's wrath when he knows that a target he wants to get, he can't get to, so he gets to the other ones to make them hurt? He can't touch Job, so he'll take his ten kids. Okay, He can't touch Jesus, because Jesus is glorified, seated in heaven, so he'll get the bride of Christ. Oh, he'll go after the bride of Christ all day, every day. Because by attacking us, he thinks he's attacking, and he is. He's attacking Christ when he attacks us. We all belong to Christ. In that, in that application. But how much more? Um, 
Matthew 12, uh, 12 again. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? Love him with all the heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, it's much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. You know, our love is much more than legalism. The ritual sacrifices of the Old Testament. Luke, a lot of these are synoptics, so they're repeats from Luke, Matthew to Luke. Consider the ravens, grass of the field. Now we get into Romans, right? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we should be saved from the wrath of God through him. Why the much more? Because look what he did while we were sinners. Look what he did while we were sinners. God, God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If he sent his son on the cross while I was a sinner, while I was condemned, how much more will he now do that I'm regenerate? I'm born again. I have his righteousness imputed in my account. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. What will he not do? <laughs> what price will he not be willing to pay? Because he look at the price he's already paid. And that's the proportion. That's the scale. If while we were enemies, how much more? Verse 10, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we have verse 9, we have verse 10, we have verse 15. The free gift is not like the transgression, for by the transgression of the one, the many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So what's worse, Adam's original sin and total depravity of, of, of humanity or the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Which is worse? Which is under the much more? Why is it that the recompense is magnified in the lake of fire for all eternity? Beyond what fallen human suffering is about here on this earth. Because of the much more principle. Uh, and the, the last two here are Romans 11. And this centers on the relationship between Israel and the church and uh, Jews versus Gentiles. If their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. In other words, because God set aside for the time being, because God set aside Israel's stewardship and now Gentiles can benefit in the body of Christ. Um, how much more then <laughs> will their fulfillment be? What's it going to be like in the second advent and then when the Jews step into the in full obedience and glory to what God has designed them for? And then the olive tree and the branches grafted in. If you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more, all right, what is the principle then when those were the natural branches being grafted into their own olive tree? And so the, the proportion there, how much more? Again, talking about Jewish people and the, the future that Israel has in their, uh, in their eschatological destiny. Um, 1 Corinthians, do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? Um, spiritual gifts, those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, that much more presentable, or less presentable members become much more presentable. Those gifts that we don't tend to credit, those gifts that we don't think are as important, guess what? Much more. Much more in the plan of God. 
the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. So much so that what used to have glory, we don't even think has glory anymore. All right, well, that's probably too many more. There's some more coming up in Philippians. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Isn't that fun? The Philippian church is like the reverse of the Exodus generation. Moses said, you know what? You guys have been a bunch of rebels while I'm here. After I'm dead, it's going to be much more worse. Right? So he, Moses expected that the Jewish people were going to be bigger rebels after he was gone. But Paul compliments the Philippians that they were obedient in his presence and now much more in his absence. Isn't that a beautiful thing? All right. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for our time in Proverbs and continue to open our eyes to make these things clear. I thank you for your faithfulness, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.